Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. Heavenly Father, we start to turn our eyes towards Lent, that time in which we focus upon our own sinfulness and making amends by falling down on our knees and asking for forgiveness from you, Lord, directing our attention and our eyes to that long journey that your Son makes with his eyes and his face set towards Jerusalem. Lord, let us too set our faces towards Jerusalem. And let us, Lord, not only be focused on knowing who we are in your eyes, but also be focused on knowing that those around us seek the light which your Son has, the promises which you have made and you have kept, O Lord Almighty. Thank you and praise be to God forever and ever for keeping those promises. We thank you and we ask that this morning that our hearts be touched, that our minds be renewed, and that our spirits be filled by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to start off with a question, but I won't leave you hanging that long this morning. The question is, what is the gospel according to Jesus? You may think that's a funny question to ask. I mean, after all, like we have four gospels here. You've got four gospels that lay out what the gospel is according to Jesus. So how can you ask that question? But I ask it because for far too often in church history, even at the beginning of the church, St. Paul talks about another gospel. If there is such a thing as another gospel in his epistles, But far too often we find ourselves in this life and in this world with people preaching other things with the moniker and in the name of the gospel. But it's not really the gospel itself. Now, I want you to hear me out. There's nothing different from what the gospel really is and what Jesus preached. They're one and the same. The problem we find in today's world is people claim things are the gospel when they are not. Or people confuse the gospel, the good news, with the law. And they create new burdens that we have to accomplish, that we can never accomplish. And they confuse the law with the gospel. So, to direct your attention, this is to last week's reading. It's going to Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to pick up at verse 14 through 15. And this is what it says. Now, after John was arrested, for John the Baptist was arrested by King Herod. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God proclaiming the good news of God. What is that good news? And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you read that too quickly, you may think, now wait a second, he was proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I missed it. Where's the gospel at? It's right there before us. The gospel is, is the fact that the time is fulfilled, that God the Father has said to God the Son, the time is complete, it has been fulfilled, it is the right moment in history, go forth. And God the Son goes forth. And He became man. It's what we celebrated at Christmas and Advent. And not only did He become man, but being fully God and fully man, He came and He came to deliver a message. He came to preach to us. And what did He tell us? That the time had been fulfilled. His Advent was here. And that the kingdom of God, that is, that reign of God, is at hand. That's incredible. Just right there. Just stopping right there. The reign of God is at hand. But far too often we say, 
I don't see the reign of God. But that's because we're fooling ourselves. We don't have eyes to see the fact that the reign of God has spread over the face of the earth. Not that God was ever not in control, but that his salvation is upon this earth here and now and is spreading. That great commission to go to every nation, every tribe, every tongue and make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that reign is at hand. But that doesn't simply mean that God is here and the reign is extending itself. It also means that since the reign of God is at hand, that, quote, repent, turn from your sins. The reign of God is here. The king has come. And what are we going to do? Continue to rebel? Heaven forbid. Turn from your sins and turn towards that reign of God. Become loyal subjects of the one who is redeeming us. And believe in the good news. That good news that the reign of God is here and is at hand. Now this gospel is more than simply the reign of God has begun. It's also the fact that everything Jesus does. That's why Mark and John and Luke and Matthew call their testimonies of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Mark, when he begins... His gospel here says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very first sentence in the gospel of Mark. And so this gospel is, from the, according to the mouth of Jesus, the reign of God is at hand. And it's also even bigger than that because it's everything that Jesus does and accomplishes for us. For the way the reign of God is instituted is throughout the beginning of his ministry all the way to his end, to his glorious resurrection and ascension. So I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want to plant this seed so that as we walk through this over the next year, going through the Gospel of Mark, that you see the big picture. Not to mention that we're going to take a break from Mark pretty soon. As we head towards Lent, it's a little bit disjointed, but there's a reason for that. We jump ahead in the story of Jesus and start preparing our hearts and our minds towards that Easter Sunday. So we're going to go through this part of Mark 1 and skip a little bit into Mark 2 in the lectionary because we'll end up missing it the way the calendar falls this year. But I want you to have understanding and context. So God's reign has begun. His rule is established here on this earth, and this is good news. It's gospel that what was wrong will be made right. Not instantly, but that it's coming. It is coming, and it's coming through the power of Jesus as we see through his life. Now, how do we know that this reign of God has begun? And it's primarily evidenced through Christ's teaching, through his teaching. For the central ministry of Jesus Christ, it's his teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, you think of his miracles and his healings. What about that? That shows us his teaching authority. But we all want the healing, don't we? It's far more appealing to our fleshy appetites. We want the healing. The teaching we can listen to later on. But Lord, give me that healing. Now it's noted in the gospel that Jesus does not teach like the other religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, the religious lawyers. And so in our reading from today, in chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, it reads, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered, Jesus did, the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. For the scribes who were faithful could merely look at the Old Testament and teach what had been passed down. 
much akin to my role of I have received both the Old and New Testament. And so my teaching, my preaching must be measured against that of the Word of God, the written Word of God in Scripture. But then Jesus appears and comes and teaches to them as though he has authority to tell them what God has to say. This is important. For it's recorded in the Scriptures that since Jesus teaches as one with authority, that it should bring something to mind to those Jewish hearers in the first century and to the Jewish people today and to those of us who read our Old Testaments because the Jewish people saw something they had not seen before or at least something they had not seen in several thousand years. But it was something that was promised to them, promised by Moses through the Spirit of God, promised long ago in our first reading from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I read here to you 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see the great fire any more, lest I die. And that's a reminder of the call when the people of Israel were gathered at the mount, and the voice of God came from the mount, and the people were afraid. And they said, We cannot bear this. And Moses went up as an intercessor, as an intermediary, as a representative of the people of God, and received the law, spoke with God, and saw him face to face, and even feasted with God Almighty. Verse 17, And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that Jesus' primary ministry was his teaching ministry. But truly, his ministry cannot be split up for everything that he did. Everything that he did for us in his life is for our salvation and is required for our salvation. For Jesus, he confirmed his teaching that the rule of God was present and had begun through his miracles. And he finished his works by dying for us upon the cross and performing his ultimate miracle, raising himself up from the dead. Not raising another, but promising that he would die and that he would take up the very life that he laid down. And by doing so, as he raises himself up from the dead, conquering that power of hell, of Hades, of death, and Satan once and for all, so that now we have hope in this good news that through him, we may join in the reign of God, be members of his kingdom, and no longer rebels and traitors. For the reign of God is evidenced through those miraculous works that we love so much and we read and enjoy in the New Testament. We see that it demonstrates why Jesus is one who speaks with authority, and those words actually carry authority. We see that he is the prophet who has given God the Father's words, for he is the word of God the Father. And so in Mark chapter 1, verse 23, we continue. And immediately in the midst of the synagogue, immediately as he was teaching, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. This is incredible. 
in the midst of teaching like one with authority, of amazing people by what he was teaching, a man who was possessed by a demon comes forth, and the demon cries out through this man's body, saying, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time has come? Because what the demon is saying is that he recognizes who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Holy One of God, bearing echoes of that Holy One, the Son of Man, whom Daniel sees in a vision, who is there upon the throne of God himself. It's very much a key identifier that, ironically, the demon within this man sees Jesus and identifies exactly who he is. Whereas the people are just amazed at how Jesus can teach with authority. And the scribes and the Pharisees are scratching their heads saying, Who does this man think that he is? We know who he is. He comes from this country town of Nazareth. How does he teach with such authority? But the demon knows. And St. James in his epistle say, do you believe in one God? You do well. But even the demons believe, and they shudder. Because the demons, more than anyone else, know who God is. For in their primary place, they once were in the court of God as angels of God before their own rebellion, taking up arms with Satan. And so they know exactly who the Holy Trinity is. They know who Jesus is and identify him as such. But though they know him intellectually, they clearly do not know them in their heart. They do not know the Blessed Trinity and give themselves over to their authority. And that's the problem. That's the rebellion. And that's where we find ourselves in, in constant rebellion to God Almighty. And yet, the demons recognize who he is and his authority. The authority and the power that Christ then shows over this demon, of casting this demon out, and casting out our own sicknesses and our own illnesses demonstrates that Jesus is far more than a prophet. Although he is the prophet promised by Moses, truly promised by God to Moses, and Moses carried that message to his people, but he's more than a prophet, for no prophet in the Old Testament had such an extensive ability to continuously heal, to heal on command, to raise the dead. Although we see the raising of the dead when a man is cast into the tomb of Elijah and he touches the bones and comes back to life, but it's not Elijah walking around raising the dead at will, healing at will. We see something more than a prophet through Jesus Christ. And the people even react in this manner in Mark 1, chapter, excuse me, verse 27. And they were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Now, notice that. They don't say, what is this? He just cast out a demon. That comes next. But the first thing that impressed him was, what is this? He teaches with authority. And then they say, excuse me, and then they add, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And then at once, his fame spreads throughout all the land of Galilee. And so we find ourselves... Here in this advent of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, in this synagogue being announced. But what do we find in this account that's quite peculiar about Jesus? Well, that the demons who identify Jesus are the ones who cry out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So that's fascinating. We spoke about that. But yet Jesus, after being identified, says, be silent. And you want to say to yourself, be silent and come out of him. You cast him out, but you command him to be silent. Why? And it's so natural to ask this question. If you don't ask it, I think you're missing out on the text. of like, Why would Jesus say, be silent? 
And the reason why is that it is not yet Jesus' time to be delivered over to the Jewish religious leaders, to be delivered over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to be executed for who he is, the king of the Jews. For now, Jesus has a ministry to execute and to accomplish before he is crowned king and crowned by the thorns cast upon his head and exalted, finally, when he's exalted upon the cross as the king of the Jews. And indeed, more than the king of the Jews, but the king of this cosmos. But Christian, we live in a day and age where the reign of God has extended over time and over space, where our king has now been crowned and exalted an exalted Son who has now ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he's now awaiting that word from the Father to judge the living and the dead, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. So what now should we be doing? We must be going about our Father's work. And the example we have in the Gospel of Mark is provided in Mark chapter 2, where we see the faith of four friends. Now these four friends, they bring along their friend who is crippled, paralyzed in his legs, perhaps even worse, but we don't know the details. We just know he's a paralytic. And he's paralyzed so that he cannot move, obviously. So these men, what do they do? Since, as we learned at the end of chapter 1, or I should say halfway through chapter 1, that the fame of Jesus is spreading, what do these four friends do? They bring their friend to the feet of the Messiah, and nothing will stop them. Nothing will stop them in this account. Because Jesus has returned now to Capernaum. And now his healing is so well known that people are flocking to him. Because people want to be healed. Understandably so, but that's their primary focus. They want to be healed. And Jesus uses every opportunity to teach that the reign of God is here and to heal. Because he reflects the image of God the Father. That God is a loving God. And he sees us in our pain. And he sees us in our suffering. And he does not want us to suffer. But let's get back now to this crowd. This crowd that has flocked around Jesus as Jesus finds himself probably in the home of someone there. Probably in the largest home that they can find so he can teach to this crowd. And this crowd is stuffed packed so that they, the four men with the paralytic friend, cannot get in. And so what do we see? With reckless abandon, they start tearing through the roof of the home. They don't even care. They're thinking about repairing it or paying them back later on. They want to get their friend in front of Jesus because they know that Jesus can heal and they lower this man right in front of Jesus where he's teaching, right before his very feet. What a testimony of friendship. What a testimony of dedication. It recalls the words of Christ in the Gospel of John. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man may lay down his life for his friends. And these four friends could have laid down their life because they easily could have fallen off the roof. One of them could have slipped. They could have made a bad decision. But they said, we're going to get this done and get him in front of Jesus. I don't care what the cost is. Now, it's the face of these four friends that leads Jesus to look upon the paralyzed man. Did you hear me? It's the faith of the four friends upon the roof who lowers their paralyzed friend down that Jesus looks up to. And because of their faith, he turns to this man and says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. But that's not what we want to hear. Let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves and gut check. Let's identify ourselves with that paralyzed man. I don't want to hear my sins are forgiven. I want to walk. That's what our selfish pride wants if we're honest with ourselves. But what's more powerful 
forgive sins or to raise a man up? And I know there's a lot of debate, especially within our hearts, and especially those without, outside the church that say, give the man his ability to walk. You can forgive sins any day of the week, Jesus. But you miss the point of Jesus' teaching ministry. You miss the point of the reign of God. That our sins, which condemn us to death, all of us, the paralyzed, the blind, the everyday walking, you know, perfectly healthy human being, we are condemned to death. We have a spiritual problem that will manifest itself physically when we die. And so Jesus tells us, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees in the room, they get it. Because they immediately object in their hearts. In their minds, they're thinking, who is this man who can forgive sins or claim to forgive sins? And that should be the question we have here. Because the answer is, this man is God. Only God can forgive sins. And that's why these good scribes and good Pharisees, good in the sense that they know their scripture, they know who can forgive sins and who cannot. God can forgive them and man cannot. And yet we see this man, Jesus, saying, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus, being God and fleshed as man, perceives their thoughts and calls them to task and says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? And without even pausing for a moment to hear an answer or another objection in the hearts of these men, Jesus tells the paralytic to stand up and walk. Stand up, take your mat, and go. And the man stands up and takes his mat and is healed. Jesus, therefore, is answering the objection within the hearts and minds of these scribes and Pharisees. Who but God can forgive sins? And indeed, who can forgive sins? And who indeed can not only forgive sins, but prove that he has the authority to forgive sins by healing him who is completely paralyzed. For that miracle demonstrates the power and the authority of his word, that indeed he is the one who can forgive sins, for he is God. But the point that I want to make for you today, the point that I want us to take home from this, is that Jesus' teaching is key. It's key. His healing is there to prove that He is the Word of God. That the Word that He teaches comes from the Word of God. And that's why we can trust it. And that's why we can believe Him. So how then shall we live knowing this teaching of Christ? We should be like the faithful friends who stop at absolutely nothing to bring our fellow friend to the feet of Jesus. Do we have such faith? Do we have such a faith? Are we so passionate in our love of our Savior that we're willing to do everything within our power to bring our friend, not a stranger, but to bring our friend to Jesus? Because the primary condition that Jesus addresses when he encounters the paralytic is not healing his paralysis, but it's announcing that his sins are forgiven. And all of our spiritual states are that of dead men walking when Jesus comes to heal the sick and to raise the dead. And only if we have new hearts can we be fit and be useful for the work of the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven that is at hand and that is among us. So Christian, you should think about this and ponder anew that you have been healed, you have been forgiven, you have been given new life. 
So do not squander it on the cares or the concerns of this world. Do not let the troubles of trying to find where to eat, trying to pay bills, trying to, to buy and sell, to be your primary devotion and concern in this life. Instead, be kingdom-minded men and women and go fishing for men. The call is not to start with the strangers, but that is certainly good and it's certainly commanded of us, but the call is to live like subjects of the true king. Are you living today as subjects of the true king? For we're entering into this season of pre-Lent, about to turn our hearts and our minds, to ask yourself, to examine yourself, do I live as though I'm a subject of the kingdom of God? Do you give glory to the king who purchased your freedom by starting the day on your knees in prayer? Do you end the day by reading the scriptures and praying for the Spirit to lead you in that next day that is to come? Start there, Christian. Start there and do not delay. Do not cast it off. Begin it this evening. Don't even say, I'll start tomorrow. Start this evening by cracking open the scriptures, getting on your knees and praying and asking the Lord to reveal to you what the Spirit is wanting you to do as you encounter and meet your neighbors and your friends and your family this week. Open your eyes and ask the Lord to open them for you so you will see the friends and the family and the co-workers who need your testimony of Jesus Christ. And let us, let us bring our friends and our family to the feet of that great physician. Let us with reckless abandon tear the roofs that are hindering us from getting our friends to Jesus' feet. And let us bring it to the great physician who brings healing, who brings new life to our spirits and to our life in this world. And let us not delay any further to get to the work of the kingdom. Let us put our hands on the plow and not look back to what this world has to offer. Let holiness be our pursuit in this time of pre-Lent and during our Lenten disciplines. And let healing become our profession as well as we deliver that good news that our sins have been forgiven and that our chains have been set free. Let us give God glory by simply being worthy servants and messengers, bringing and delivering the message to our friends, our family, our co-workers, and yes, even the stranger. And may we be faithful servants who are delivering that message, even as being rejected, delivering that message, and doing everything we can to bring them to the feet of Jesus. To God be the glory. Amen. Thank you again for joining us on the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. We hope that you visit us in person. We have Sunday worship uh, every Sunday at 1030 in the morning. And you can visit us on our website at www.goodshepherdacna.com or visit us on Facebook at Good Shepherd ACNA. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast. It not only makes us feel better, but more importantly, it helps those who are searching for Anglican podcasts find podcasts like this one and other ones that are out there on the web. Thank you, God bless, and have a good one. The Lord be with you, and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. 
Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do. 